The preaching of God's Word is 1 Thessalonians 5, and there verses 23 and 24. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Before us is a section of Paul's epistle, but also concluding this epistle, wherein he commends to us this great blessing, the very God of peace sanctify you holy. It's in the form of a benediction. It's certainly expressive of Paul's desire, but it is a pronouncement of sorts that is like unto verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And so it is a testimony of the Lord's provision. And it is, of course, in the uh, with the theme of sanctification. So you see that idea quite clearly when Paul says, the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. He talks about the scope of that. And you'll notice that our uh, spirit, soul, body be preserved blameless. He's not talking about uh, justification, but preserved morally blameless in our activity. And he sets before us the great hope of God who is faithful will do it. Well, this theme of sanctification, of course, is related to holiness. To be sanctified is to be made holy. You'll notice that in this uh, section that uh, the brothers and sisters in verse 27 are called holy brethren. And this is why, of course, that in many of Paul's epistles it opens up with an address to the saints And so we see that again and again, the saints that are here, the saints that are there, and here Paul simply calls them the holy brethren. This theme of holiness is throughout the Scriptures. We saw that in Leviticus. We can see it many other places as well. And we have that beautiful expression of the beauty of holiness. Men and women love beautiful things. Now it's true our subjective appreciation of things can be marred and marked, even with reference to physical beauty. And yet, so soon as one discerns uh, that which is well-balanced and uh, uh, with the various proportions that would make it uh, rightly discerned as beautiful, it's something that gives us delight. We may not be able to express it all in uh, the various specifics, but uh, men, women, and children see a sunset and all of the hues of color going across the sky and they pause to look at it ever so briefly, and yet with some degree of delight. And this is because beauty strikes us. But notice the Scriptures speak of the beauty of holiness. What a description it is. God is, of course, most holy. And brethren, let's be clear, though we can say things like He's most holy, or the holiest, or He transcends our understanding of holy, and so on, such as His holiness, we have to admit that His holiness is indeed beyond our full grasp. His purity is beyond what we can conceive. And this both means that He absolutely loves what is true, good, noble, and so on, and He absolutely and fully detests all that is wicked and corrupt in sin. And of course, He's established a kingdom of righteousness and a holy kingdom, a kingdom of saints, holy ones, and such is beautiful. How can holiness not be beautiful when it is, of course, representative of the God who has called us? We have to admit the world despises this beauty. It may indeed be able to acknowledge outward beauty of a man or woman. It may be able to look upon various uh, ways of moral beauty as self-sacrifice and selfless service and so on in its relative forms. It may be able to recognize physical beauty in such things as flowers and sunsets, but it cannot and it will not acknowledge the beauty of holiness. And this is, of course, because the faculty that enables one to see true spiritual beauty in sinners is dead. They are dead. Their souls are dead. It is as much as to take a blind person into an art gallery and cause them to look upon various portraits that stimulate our minds and affections with beauty because of the skill that is portrayed as to take 
a sinner dead in their sins and make them consider God and His holy law and His holy church and so on and expect them to find it beautiful. Instead, they'll find it repugnant. And though this is true, what troubles us perhaps more so than the world is that within us there still remains sin, which is at war against the truth of holiness. And so even Paul, who wrote this epistle, spoke of that which was in him as he saw within his members a law that held him, as it were, uh, contrary to the way of God. And so the Spirit desires contrary to the flesh, that remaining part of sin in us, and the flesh desires contrary to the Spirit. And this burdens us, especially when we come into its experience and wrestlings and exercise of sanctification. But here before us is a tremendous encouragement. It may be that as we have sought holiness by God's grace, that we have again and again found various disappointments and discouragements. It's easy, of course, for us to see failures in others. And we can pretend unto a zeal because we like to criticize them. But it's a whole different thing when we come face to face with our own failures and our own remaining sins. And this causes our souls to become quite discouraged and cast down. But notice here, Paul doesn't say unto the saints that you are to sanctify yourselves, but rather the very God, the true God of peace is the one who will sanctify you. It's to God that we are to look. And what encouragement, verse 24, faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. And as we'll consider the scope there as well, your whole spirit and soul and body and so on. This great encouragement of not just a small corner of one's being, being somewhat made more holy, but this longing desire and encouragement to know that the Lord is at work in and through all that we are to make us increasingly resemble Him and His beauty. That is, that He would cause the beauty of holiness to be given unto us His people as well. Is this not what Christ gave Himself for? As Ephesians tells us, that He washes the church by His Word, that He seeks to purify her from every spot and wrinkle. And so it is Christ's work applied to us, beautifies us in holiness, that we by His grace are made not just outwardly, but inwardly pure. We'll consider then as we think on sanctification from this passage, three things. Firstly, the meaning of sanctification. Secondly, the goal of sanctification. And thirdly, the hope of sanctification. Meaning the goal and the hope as we consider these two verses. Well, then the meaning of sanctification. Uh, almost everyone acknowledges, because it's so simple and plain throughout the Scriptures, that sanctification has to do with being set apart. And so we find, of course, under the Old Testament, there were instruments of the tabernacle service, there was the priest, and there was that holy anointing oil. Think of that word, holy, which has to do and is related to the term sanctify, sanctification, and so on. That holy anointing oil, which itself was off limits from the common people. And so there was the death penalty. If someone were to compose this mixture which was specific for the holy anointing oil, they are to be put to death because it was set apart. It wasn't of common use. It wasn't for us to make use of. But this which was holy by God's appointment was then used to set other things apart. So it set the high priest apart. It set uh, certain furniture in the tabernacle apart and other such things as well. But we have to ask, set apart to what? It's not just set apart in some abstracted and um, uncertain way, but rather it takes its root from the idea of God, who is, as you're well familiar, most holy. So Isaiah 6, God is seen, as it were. The manifestation of His glory is seen by Isaiah, and he hears the message, the unceasing message of praise and delight and worship of the angels as the angels cry out, Holy, holy, holy. Now, children, you know, of course, the notion 
that there are comparatives and superlatives in grammar. And so you have good, better, best. And we have these three forms. Well, in Hebrew, especially when something was wished to be acknowledged as that superlative to which there was nothing equal, it was that it was tripled, holy, holy, holy. And so God is seen by the angels, which is instructive because the angels had not sinned. The angels were still pure. The angels were without sinful thoughts and without sinful desires or actions. And yet they gaze upon the manifestation of God's glory and they never cease crying out. Even the imagery within the tabernacle and temple have the angels, as it were, bowing in the presence of the unseen and holy God. Nadab and Abihu are struck down for daring to draw near to God without sanctifying Him. As Moses says to Aaron, Nadab and Abihu's father, this is what the Lord hath said, I will be sanctified by them that draw near Me. What's the point? It's not that we set God apart. We can't do that. We don't have the right to do that. God, rather, is set apart. And when we draw near to Him, we're to remember that. We're not drawing near to someone who is our equal, or someone who is our equal, but only a little bit better than us, or even significantly better than us, but still um, are, uh, of our essence and so on. And so you can think of this. If the President of the United States were to have a special breakfast with us, and we went and we were given the opportunity perhaps to uh, um, speak of the will of Christ to that man and to testify of the needs of biblical faithful leadership, we would come still with decorum and honoring his office. That's a biblical teaching. We wouldn't hesitate to speak for the cause of Christ, but we would honor, as the Bible tells us, those who have authority over us. And that's not because the president or congressmen or chief justices are uh, something other than human. It's rather because though they are human, they've been given an office which is elevated above others. But with God, it's not that. It's not that God is our equal, but He just holds a higher office. It's that He is of Himself infinitely glorious, infinitely Holy. This is the angel's point. He is most holy. Well, what does this mean? Well, he's set apart from, frankly, everything. He's set apart from creatures. He's the creator. There's a grand line dividing two things. That line is the line which marks out the creator, who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and the creation, which is finite and changeable and limited. This is true of mountains and stars, and it's true of you and me. It's true of angels, as we see angels had a beginning. And we see that some of the angels changed by sinning against God, and they've fallen. But with God, there's no such change, because He is the unchangeable and most glorious One. He is transcendent and exalted and above all that is. And this is particularly seen in His unchanging commitment to what is good and true and right and morally pure. And so it is that when we think of sanctification and its meaning, we have to start with the One who is holy and then the notion of things being set apart to Him. And so the church is a holy church. Not just a congregation, but the whole collective reality of every man, woman, and child who is a member of the church. They're set apart from the world now. They are claimed by God now. They're no longer their own. And so even covenant children, even if not regenerate, of course, are set apart unto God. And God gives them promises and encouragements and other such things, commandments that they are to observe and honor and remember that God has claimed them and that they are no longer to live unto themselves. Believers are, as it were, doubly claimed, not only by the covenant, but by the application of saving grace, so that they've been made regenerate, and their souls being set apart by grace are now to live by that same grace. 
So this meaning of sanctification is a meaning of being set apart to the Lord, that we're no longer to be walking in the darkness. You see this notion earlier in this chapter when Paul is dealing with light and darkness, day and night. So in verse 5, he says, Ye, speaking to the believers, ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Unless we were mistaken to think he's talking about our, uh, a night shift or a day shift, he's speaking of uh, the way that we live. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. They that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet the hope of salvation. And so this holiness it has severed us from the world so that now our whole orientation is unto God. And this notion is expressed by uh, John in 1 John, his first epistle in chapter 1, when John mentions that the things which he's seen and handled, looked upon and so on, the word of life has been proclaimed that we uh, might have fellowship, uh, verse 3, with us, as he says, John and the apostles, And notice, truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. And then notice, again, the imagery of light and darkness in verse 5, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Now think of this for a moment. Who here can have that said of themselves? In me is light, and there's no darkness at all. If someone truly believed that, they are most ignorant of the reality of their remaining sin. And yet... Notice what is mentioned in verses 6 and 7. If we say that we have fellowship, remember that notion of fellowship or communion, is holding in common with another. So a husband has fellowship with his wife in the marriage bond. Children have fellowship with their parents in the uh, family bond. Church members have communion together in Christ and so on. And, And we as believers have fellowship communion with God. And so if that's the case, and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Why? Because if we're to have fellowship with God, we're to walk as God would have us to walk. He doesn't walk in sin. There's no darkness in Him. He doesn't go into the courses of sin and take a pleasure in sinful twists and corruptions and perversions. And so it is were to walk in the light. And so this is the notion of sanctification, that we are walking with God. What a beautiful expression, simple that is. To walk with God. The imagery of, you know, can two walk together except they be agreed? Well, if we're to walk with God, it's not that He would agree to our terms. It's not that He would agree to our desires but rather we who are infinitely beneath Him and are rebels against Him by our sins would by His grace be brought to desire what He says. So when Christ comes and preaches the Gospel, He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He doesn't say to them, here are some terms, you look at it, revise it, come back with a counteroffer, and we'll start to work it through. But instead He says, here it is, simple plain. If you're going to be in my kingdom, you need to repent. Of course, we see increasingly in our world even professed Christians compromising that notion. And this is because of many things, but one such thing is sanctification is increasingly set apart and marginalized from the centrality that it carries in the Christian's life as held forth in the Scripture. There is to be a great consuming focus on this because, as we saw in Leviticus, I am the Lord your God. I am the God that sanctifies you. I've called you out of darkness, out of bondage, out of death, into light and liberty and life. And this is true of us today. As we note again and again, this is the very thing Christ says, if the Son shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. And what happens is wayward thinking starts to say, well, He's made us free so we can live as we want. We don't have to be so concerned about these things. But instead, we need to remember He's liberated us from our bondage to sin. 
In other words, He's liberated us from our sinful bondage of desires and speech and actions, our use of time and other such things as that. And what He's done is, in liberating us from that bondage of darkness, He's brought us into the light. I think for a moment, the utter confusion where people to, to live in the day and say, well, I'm going to do my life, I'm going to carry out my work while I blind myself. I'm going to go about and drive down the highway, but first I'm going to blind myself. We'd say, that can't happen. You know, well, I'm at liberty to do this. There's no law preventing my blinding myself. Well, there may be no civil law against it, but morality speaks against it, natural law speaks against it, and common sense speaks against it. If one has sight, they're to use their faculties so that they can function according to what is seen. Well, here's the truth. The believer was one who was blind and inhabited darkness, but now they've been given sight so they can see, and the light of Scripture is afforded to them so that they can make sense of the world. So what sense does it make then to say, well, I'm going to live as when I was blind or as the rest of the darkened world does? When it is that God has said, I've rescued you from that so that you can walk according to my will in Scripture. So the meaning of sanctification, being set apart unto the Lord to walk with Him by His grace according to His will. But notice, secondly, the goal of sanctification. This is where we shoot far too low. We think that we've hit it high, but we've actually hit the basement and there are multiple stories above what we think is the standard. Notice the goal It is, as Paul says, the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Notice that means entirely. And he repeats the notion when he says, and your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is linking back to what he's introduced about the day of the Lord previous in chapter 4 and even before that, the dead in Christ shall rise, verse 16, when the Lord shall descend from heaven. And so it's speaking of that return of Christ. And what Paul's getting at here is after having established in the opening of chapter 5 that we are children of the day, a very uh, expressive uh, way of thinking about Christians. There's the day of the Lord, and believers are children of that day. The light of that day to come is already shining in them, so they're to walk in light of that day. Now he says, here's the great thing I pronounce to you, that God should keep you, sanctify you, preserve you, blameless till that day. That there should be a preservation of holiness and a progression of holiness. Notice, he's writing to those who are holy brethren, who are saints, who are in one sense set apart, But he's saying there's still more to happen. The God of peace sanctify you wholly. May He do it. Let Him do it. I proclaim it unto you. And so someone could say, but wait, you know, I am holy. And a believer is right to say that. We are holy. But that is in two senses. In the first and main sense when we say we are holy is that we have had that initial separation from death and uh, 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 sin. And so you see this in regeneration. There is an intimate link between regeneration and sanctification. It is as the conception that brings forth in the living child that grows and matures, which is regeneration unto the growth of the Christian. So the conception of one in the womb is like the spiritual regeneration of one when we consider the reality of what the Spirit's doing. But when one is conceived in the womb and then they're born and brought forth, they don't stay a one week old. They don't stay that size. They don't just grow and say, well, I'm a human, and no parent would be satisfied if 20 years down the road their child is still two feet tall or one foot tall or however tall they uh, go through these first few months. They would desire the child to grow and to mature and to think and speak clearly and their bodies to grow and so on. Certainly, there are abnormalities and there are uh, great and painful 
difficulties that come upon growth issues and mental uh, development and so on. But this is the point. Those things aren't looked upon by us as things that are to be desired. Those are painful afflictions. does nothing to denigrate the dignity of a 30-year-old who has the mind of a one-year-old. That person is an image bearer of God, worthy of our service, love, and support. But there's something that we feel that's not as it should be. And so it is, we desire ourselves to grow. We desire our children to grow, our grandchildren to grow. Though they're a person, a human being at their conception, we desire to see them physically grow and mentally grow and mature in advance. Well, this is the same thing with reference to the notion of sanctification. It's true. He's writing to holy brethren, sanctified brethren, but that in the sense of they're set apart to God. And now he's speaking of the progression and maturing maturing of that work. The very God of peace, notice not, has sanctified you holy, but rather it is Paul's desire as he pronounces that God will sanctify you holy. This is the hope and desire of the Apostle. Notice this goal includes the whole person. Notice the language when he says, sanctify you wholly. We can think of that when we think of the goal as not just a little more love to God or a little more despising of sin, but the massive increase so that it might be said of us, there is a pure man who loves God with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind and all of his strength. There is a, uh, a sanctified woman in process of being more sanctified who detests sin with all of her heart, all of her soul, all of her mind, all of her strength. All that he is, all that she is, is now increasingly enamored with God. And in that love to God, that person despises sin. This is true for the maturing Christian. No Christian can say in this life that I've arrived. Paul elsewhere says that in the book of Philippians. Not that I have attained already, but this one thing I do, I press on toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus and so forth. But every Christian, given time, will discover that what they once thought was a high point of love to God has been outdone by His grace so that when they thought that they had really started to put off the old man, they were just taking out one of the first layers. And they've since then, by God's grace, taken off more. And they've put on more layers of righteousness and love to God and love to neighbor. So that as they've lived 10, 20, 30 years with the Lord, they are fairer in the ways of holiness than when they first began. Why? Because this expansive work of the Holy Spirit is taking in all that the person is. This is why an an immature Christian, though a Christian, is rightly considered immature. Their thoughts need to be further developed. Their activities need to be further conformed. Their desires need to be enlarged for the Lord. So there are weak Christians and strong Christians. There are you know, foolish Christians and wise Christians. And yet all of us are seeking by God's grace this growth which is to consume all that we are. And brethren, we mentioned there's a great link between regeneration and sanctification. Regeneration is the beginning, the initial start of this process of sanctification. There's also a link between sanctification and glorification. Because at glorification, this is ultimately and perfectly realized. Where there's not so much as a whisper of a sinful thought or the slight uh, trembling of a wicked desire or any activity that is out of accord with the will of God. And so our catechism rightly summarizes the Scriptures that at death what happens? The soul of the believer is made perfect in holiness. As soon as the believer dies, though their body remains in this world and is buried in the grave and is resting in the Lord Jesus Christ, yet their soul is made perfect in holiness. What a thought that is, awaiting the resurrection. 
So the goal is that the whole person would be sanctified. This gives us, of course, reason to examine ourselves. And so, you know, there are seasons when in uh, secret we're doing that. There are seasons as a congregation that we're examining ourselves. When we're saying, you know, where is there? Think of the psalmist. Search me, O God, and try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. And that's the notion. Uh, I need your help to do it. I need you to shine light upon me in order that I may see it. But I don't just want you to discover the scandalous things that the world can see. I don't just want you to discover the public things that perhaps my spouse or Christians that are around me can see. I want you to discover the secret things because I don't want that in my life anymore. That's sanctification. That we're not just wanting our outward man change. We do. Notice our body is included, thus our actions. But our spirit and our soul is to be sanctified. And by God's grace, preserved, blameless, maintaining that continuation of walking with the Lord. This is the goal. And it is the goal throughout the end. Notice, unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's not that we're to get to a place and say, well, that's enough, and now I'm going to start living as I want to live again. But rather, this isn't, it's, there's implications for the individual who's alive, that our whole life is to be lived in this way for the Lord's glory. But it's also giving an implication about the church. So though there are wrong understandings of certain things that various creeds have presented, it's a right statement that there is one holy Catholic apostolic church. And so it's not one holy Catholic apostolic Roman church, but it is one which is Christ's church. And it is a holy church. And this is to be true in every generation. The church is not to be holy for a generation and then cast off the holiness and compromise and then perhaps later on will become holy and so on. The church, the people of God, are to be sanctified from the very beginning when God gave promise in the garden all the way to the last day that Christ returns. This is why we have no hesitation to assert that God's people today are to live as God's Word says from hundreds of years before. Because God's Word is the standard of holiness. It's God's Word that teaches us what's right, what's wrong, what's pure, what's impure. And so the church in all ages is to be seeking this by the provision of God. So the goal is this comprehensive, both in the person, sanctification, but also in the church throughout the end of the world, there is to be a holy bride for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, notice then thirdly, the hope. It may be that so soon as we start to see the standard of sanctification, and if there's any ability for us to reflect upon ourselves, we start to say, well, that's quite discouraging. Because I know what it is. I can put on the makeup of holiness in front of others. right? I can come to the gathering place of the Lord's people and I can pretend to be, or even for the moment, be a person who speaks rightly, behaves rightly, does rightly, thinks rightly. But when I start to look at my life in secret, I start to see this whole uh, struggle that's there and this... Uh, difference that's there. It's as Paul says, you know, I, I see within my members this remnant of the old man. Sin is still at work in me. Brethren, it is discouraging to see sin. It is one reason that men, even professed Christians, look at self-examination as a chore and have long lists of superficial arguments against it. And so it's easy to say things, you use bombastic language and say, well, examination, you know, that's, uh, uh, you know, it's morbid introspection. You know, who wants to, we're supposed to have the joy of the Lord and so on. We say, well, of course we have the joy of the Lord. But how can you have the joy of the Lord when you're riddled with sin? How can it be there when you aren't interested in the things that the Lord is interested in? We can have a notion of the joy of the Lord that's superficial, which then provides us a superficial acquaintance with sin. But where there's to be joy of the Lord reigning in us, 
that demands that we have some likeness to that Lord whose joy is to be reigning in us. And here's the great hope. It's not in your power. And this is a great problem as we'll see. People see the standard and they say, well, that's where it needs to be. Here's where the world is. Here's where I am. I need to get up and doing and giving my all for it. And there's truth to that. We do need to be diligent. As Paul elsewhere says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But it's interesting. He acknowledges, for it is God who works within you, right? And notice here, the same notion, this massive standard, this beauty of holiness, which is both outward and inward, thought and word and deed, desire, all of it, being set apart increasingly so that it's not just, well, I know I should do that, so I'm going to do it, but I know I should do that, and by God's grace, I'm finding that I love to do it. That's sanctification. Notice that that has a sure hope because of who causes it to take place. Paul says it twice over. The very God of peace sanctify you holy. Who's the subject? It's God. What's the action? Sanctify. What's the object? You. God is the one sanctifying you. And he says again in verse 24, faithful is he, as he says, that calleth you who also will do it. It's God who brings this to pass. Notice the beauty of our Savior's prayer in John chapter 17. We referenced this earlier when Christ says, sanctify them through the truth. Thy word is truth. Notice that language is, of course, appealing to the Father in heaven to perform this work in His people. And He does so by the means of His word, which is truth. But also notice that Christ says in verse 19, for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. There's this triune work, and it's of course apparent with the Holy Spirit, who is, by the way, the Holy Spirit, who abides within us and dwells within us and works within us, transforming our thoughts and desires. But the Father is active in our sanctification. The Son is the cause of our sanctification. The Spirit is working in our sanctification. Sanctification is a triune work where each person is particularly applying and working in and so on, uh, securing our holiness. You know, so you can see Christ in Ephesians 5 where He washes the bride with the Word. And He's cleansing, but He does so as He blesses by the Spirit, who as it were takes the things of Christ and cleanses us within, so that then our speech and our actions are more conformed unto His likeness. All in accordance with the Father's decree. Notice this simple statement in verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians 5. God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see this triune work of God earnestly seeking our sanctification. Notice as we referenced John 17, you could go back to Leviticus as well in chapter 19 and 20 and others, and you'll see again, God spake these words. And what do the words instruct? The way of sanctification. Think of the Ten Commandments. There is the Word of God given. And these words are then to be written upon our hearts. What's the point? God performs this, and yet He does so by His grace and with the use of means. Right? So it's God's grace who does it. He doesn't say, I'm going to sit back and I'm going to wait for you to take the first step. And when you take the first step, so long as it's a right step, so long as it's good enough in my eyes, then I'm going to do the rest. No. It's God who takes us out of our death, brings us to life. It's God who finds us dead in our sins, implants life. It's God who, yes, forgives our sins and so on, but it's He who then is at work. And He does so because of Christ who sanctified Himself, that by Him, through Him, we might be sanctified. It's a Spirit who is sent unto us. As Jesus says, you know, I go, but we, my Father and I, will come again. And this He does by the person of His Holy Spirit. God brings this to pass. God does it. Though we have an activity, the activity is the consequence of God's which precedes all else. Notice 
what assurance do we have that God will do it? Well, this. It goes back to what God is. Verse 24, Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Imagine that almost everyone in this room has lived long enough to see faithful men have issues wherein they are for a moment unfaithful. They give their word, I'm going to be here at this time and do it, and it skips their mind. They fail to do it. I'm going to finish this paper and turn it in, and you know things come up and they fail to do it. Um, children have said, you know, I'm going to do this chore, and then you know, they get distracted and they, they don't do it. And yet we still, in general, refer to people who in the main do keep their word as faithful. But that's not how God is faithful. God isn't faithful in the main. He's not faithful 90% of the time or 95% of the time. It's not like certain sports where you look at certain averages of success and you say if that were a test score, the person would have failed miserably and yet they're still in their sport a good athlete. It's not that at all. It's that God is faithful always, perfectly, all the time. And whereas He has said, I will sanctify you, and Paul is the vessel by which he's pronouncing the purpose of God toward us. And then we read, Faithful is He that calleth you, who also will do it. We have a perfect ground of assurance that God will indeed be at work in us to this end. Notice Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and there at verse 6. Paul says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it or finish it until the day of Jesus Christ. Notice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and verses 12 and 13. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. There's this constant reality and acknowledgement of God's perfect work in His people. What's the point? The hope of real sanctification is not the Pharisees' hope of their false sanctification. It's not by us saying, well, I'm going to figure this out and get it all together. It's rather by us looking to God as held captive to Him by His grace that He would be the one who sanctifies us, taking Him at His Word. So the hope of sanctification is a divine hope in a gracious and loving God. Well, brethren, as we've been brief in these things, Notice as we close out that this stands to correct many errors regarding sanctification that are either conscious or not today. There are errors that by experience many of us have uh, tasted the bitter dregs of such a false approach where we are persuaded, well, the law is right, it's holy, just, and good, right? The Scriptures say that. We look at the world and we say, well, whatever else the world is, it's not wholly just and good because it's not living in accordance to God's law. And then we reflect it ourselves and we say, I'm not wholly just and good because I have desires, words, and actions which are contrary to God's holy law. So here's what I have to do. I have to make myself holy. Now we may get refined in this and we may say, well, there are means of grace, so I'm going to use those means. But what ends up happening is we start building upon the means as if they're the thing that actually make us holy instead of realizing that the means are those through which God extends His grace to sanctify us. What's the difference? Well, the difference is in merely looking at the use and quantifying of the use of the Bible, prayer, sacraments, and thinking, by the action, I'm most certainly going to be sanctified. Versus looking at the means and seeking the Lord by the means to perform that work in us. So think of it this way, children. It's hot out. It's summertime. And you're outside playing. And there's a hose. But it's not connected to the spigot. You don't say, well, now my thirst is quenched. You don't go to a hardware store and buy 55 different hoses 
which are vehicles or means through which the water comes to us if connected to the source. We don't say, it's okay because I've got the means. The means has to be hooked up to the source through which then that quenching water comes to our body. And so it is by the word. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 119 is regular in both emphasizing the use of the means, but explicitly looking to God saying, quicken me, enliven me, pour out your spirit, and so on. What's the point? If we're to be sanctified, it must be God who sanctifies us. He will use the means. But this then transforms our approach that when we sit down to read the Word or come to a prayer meeting or worship service on other occasions, we do make use of the means, but our souls are oriented to God. We aren't oriented to the preacher, though we respect, even as Paul says in this very chapter. We aren't oriented to the elder who comes on a pastoral visit, though we honor that person as a means. But we look through these means unto God. So, for instance, this Saturday we hope to have a service of worship on a day of humiliation. We don't look to our day of humiliation and say, therefore, God's going to bless us. No, we humble ourselves in order to look more earnestly to God, who is our only hope. The means only bless as God blesses through them. This revolutionizes the Christian life because it doesn't permit us to set the means aside, but it causes us to set them in the right order. I use the means looking to God, pleading His promises, relying upon Him. So it corrects our self-righteous attempt at sanctification. It also prevents an error in sanctification which says, well, let's be honest, no one of their own strength can attain to what Paul has said. Therefore, let's be content to reduce what's expected. And so you see lesser standards of holiness that are expected by various sections of the church. You say, well, the law, you know, that's pretty strict and pretty plain and, and, and forthright. So, you know, let's just reduce what's expected of the Christian. And so though it's true, sincerity is uh, essential to holiness, sincerity is not the same as holiness. So what's the point? Well, I may have a sincere feeling of doing what's right, but if I'm not doing what's right, it's not holiness, right? Sincerity is requisite, but the activity that flows from that is likewise required. I can't just say, you know, well, I meant to, therefore I'm okay. Holiness is both intention and action, brought together. And so when you hear some people talk about holiness as if all that cared about, all that God cares about is our intention, well, it's true. He demands our intention to be right. The Pharisees had many outward displays, but their intentions were corrupt. They looked like whited sepulchers, outwardly glorious, inwardly full of dead men's bones. That doesn't mean we should look outwardly deplorable and yet be full of life within. Christ isn't talking about that. He's saying rather, we are to have, think of his statement, our righteousness is to exceed that of the Pharisees. It's to have both the outward display, but the outward display is to flow from life within. And many Christians act as, well, the Pharisees got it wrong, so let's just invert the order. Don't care about speech. Don't care about crass communication. Don't care about activities and so on. Just care about feelings and hearts and so on. When the Bible, notice the language, whole body, spirit, soul, this is collective of the whole person. But you see, when men mistaken the source of sanctification and places it within your ability and my ability, they necessarily have to reduce the standard of holiness. But when we see that holiness is God's grace to us at work in us, causing us then to love the Lord, love His law, love His word, love His people, and then He will cause us to walk therein, it doesn't allow us to reduce the standard. Because it's God bringing us to walk according to it. Well, many more things could be said, but perhaps one question comes and says, if God does it, what then 
of our activity. You know, Paul's quite clear, God will do it. It's true. And yet we have to remember, how does God do it? He does it, as we've sung, as we've read, by quickening us. So He's working within us, making use of the means, and causing our minds to reason rightly, causing our hearts to desire the right things, and causing our actions to follow after Him. So God is the one who is at work to will and to do of all of His good pleasure, as Paul says. But it is that He then causes us to will and to do of all of His good pleasure. In other words, God is the one sanctifying us, but He's not the one being sanctified. We are. He really is changing our thoughts. He really is changing our hearts and our desires, and thus necessarily changing our actions. So, what is our part? Well, our part is, of course, first and essentially to be worked upon in regeneration. But once regenerated, and thus believing upon Christ Jesus, it is for us to petition Him and to pray and to seek the promises. And we'll close with this one reference from Second Peter, which we spent time on some months back. In Second Peter in chapter 1, notice and you'll see this connection quite clearly. Verse 3 of Second Peter 1 is His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, and beside this, giving all diligence. Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, and so on. Notice, central to it, God gives us promises that we are to plead. This is the bedrock of sanctification. It's asking God to keep His Word. And notice how Paul concludes this passage. Faithful is He that calleth you who also will do it. The hope of our sanctification is not in us. It's in our holy God who has promised to be gracious to us. And so then when we approach and desire greater attainments and thoughts and actions and desires, we look to God. We search His Word and we find those promises and we cleave to them and we plead them and we say, God, this is Your Word. You've said that You'll change my thoughts and my desires. You've said that You've transformed me. So I ask You, who is faithful, to do it. And when that happens, you'll finally understand what Christ says. My burden is easy. It's not heavy. It's heavy to the one who looks at the burden and tries to pick it up by their own strength, which is no strength. But it's easy and light when they come to Christ and say, work within me now. And by His grace, we're enabled to walk, yea, to run, as He quickens us. Well, may the Lord so add His blessing that we might grow in grace and godliness. Would you stand with me for prayer?